Jordan, how are you doing? Good. That's good. That's good. Got another tea. Yeah. See why? Fresh bag. Yes. Yeah. I see what the issue was. Is you were heating the tea at a hundred degrees. What's it at now? It was at ninety. So even that's going to make it. Do- All right. Usually I go eighty-five. So I've got a kettle that you can adjust the the temperature setting. Mm. Very high tech. I'll um, be the canary in the mine and see if ninety works this time. Tell me what you think. No, I can't do it. I can't. Do- I'm too scared. It's too hot. <laughs> Are you going to go? No. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty hot. <laughs> Let's just dip your tongue into it. All right, now I'm going to have a little mini burn on my tongue for the next couple of days. Does it oh. hurt already? It's in very lightly. I'll be fine. Okay. I'll well. be fine, mate. <laughs> yeah. Sure good air. We've just turned off so many listeners already. Like, look at these two pussies complaining about the heat of the liquid on their tongue. How can we take these guys seriously? And then saying that it's like a test of manliness. (laughs) (laughs) What is our demographic? I don't know. Who the fuck listens to this? (laughs) That's a good strategy to... uh, Who are you? To to, to, inform the audience we we value you by... uh, No, thank you for doing so. I am very grateful for it, but... Who the God, hell yeah, are what, you people? What, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Two comedians talking about, what do we talk? Well, serious issues, but also just a lot of comedy, a lot of comedy talk. So much about that. It always relates back to it. A lot of breakdown I'm sorry. of comedy. But at the same time, you like it. Don't pretend you don't. They love it. Do they? Good. Well, I'm... well that's all you're getting anyway, so I hope you do. I'm just going to say that they love it. You don't know. Speaking, uh, <laughs> I have no idea. I've gone a few. I've gone a few minutes. No, you know what? Uh, a few people uh, have come up to me after the shows and told me that they love the podcast. That's cool. So there you go. I never wanted to. I was always very against doing a podcast, but jumped into it. I think they're a really important slash fascinating medium. I think you almost not that you have to, but it it just helps. In this day and age, so much. Mm -hmm. It really does. But also, fuck talking to different people every week. I actually really like just talking to you. I'd hate to be interviewing someone, you know, one week to the next. Just be like, say, the sixth guy that came off the block. What did you learn at your time? Is Scott Cam a nice person? (laughs) I wouldn't care. I think it's just better to just listen to someone you that you enjoy listening to. Surely you could have better guests. You could attract better guests than that. Could I? I think you could. Honestly, you what do you think probably you... get? I think you could get politicians on if you did a podcast. <laughs> they wouldn't touch me with a 10-foot pole. The ones that are out of politics but might. It would, wouldn't it be in their interest? Because they're then appealing to... They're then you're getting access to a base of very politically interested individuals. See, that's what you would think. But I do remember that Bill Maher had to sign a White House petition, get a million people to sign it. I signed it as well, actually to get Obama to be interviewed by Bill Maher. And is there a bigger fan of Obama than Bill Maher? And he wouldn't go on that show. I don't know why that is. What was the... Okay. Do you think you could speculate? Do you think there's just too much potential for things to go wrong? In fact, actually, you know what? Because now all of them do the talk shows. I know, well, Hillary and uh, Donald went on Jimmy Fallon and... They like those shows. 
because those shows there's oh, not nothing political. unexpected that's right. going to happen. They, they're probably going to give pre-approved questions, they're but I think that's challenged. what they're scared of with Bill Maher is that he's going to ask political questions and force them to take a position on things, and you don't want to be doing that. <laughs> you you want to be keeping things sure. nice and breezy. Basically, as a politician, you just want to come off so that people just go like, "Oh, yeah, yeah he seems all right." Yeah, right. It's much better for you to go down that path. And if I'm just sitting there, just being like, oh, sure, sure, "Tell me about the Trans-Pacific Partnership." You don't want to be doing that. And a lot of the liberals go on uh, two two GB, but then they just do that and they complain about Labor. Yeah, I so don't actually works. understand that. The, the Labor Party seems very. You know, the reason is is just because the media is so against the Labor Party that they're just kind of shill shocked by it. The the saying in Sussex Street, which is where the Labor Party's campaign is, uh, the headquarters is, is how do we stay off page one of the Telegraph? Whereas on Macquarie Street, which is where the Liberals are, their slogan is, how do we get on page one of the Telegraph? So I think that's it. They're just kind of used to the media being nice to them. Whereas, you know, like Bill Shorten is used to going on Alan Jones and him grilling him. And I think that the thing is that they know that if they go on my podcast or they go on my show, they're just going to be like, look look at this guy. This guy's an absolute clown. He's eating a raw squid once. He's got ink all over his face. He's disgusting. And now Bill Shorten's hanging out with that guy. What a disgrace. I think that's what's happening. Because I remember actually... People going up to Bill Shorten. But those people wouldn't be voting. Ah, uh, you would. What? So if the mainstream media criticise a Labour politician for going on a podcast with you, the people who generally listen to the mainstream media probably weren't going to vote. It's fair to assume at least the majority of them might necessarily have voted Labour anyway. But the thing is that Whereas... they're the news makers. As in Alan Jones, The Telegraph, The Australian, they just kind of create this huge echo chamber oh, in this okay. country and then other so news they... outlets pick up on it Sure. and so they start running those lines. So that's that's always what they're thinking in the forefront of their minds. Oh, what right. is The Australian saying today? What's Sky News saying? Well, and if there's an ambitious uh, independent somewhere, they could go and... <sighs> no, even them. Do I want to talk to them? <laughs> Usually, like, look, there are some switched-on independents, but not many... <laughs> most of them are just crap but look I, I do remember that like Bill Shorten actually somebody came up to him during the election and said go on Friendly Geordies and do an interview with him and he said I'm not touching that with a 10 foot pole and they said why and he said too red hot that was his legit quote and well, that's... you will not find a bigger fan of Bill Shorten than me yeah but that you must be proud of that that you're making an impact in Canberra, that they know you. Oh, they all watch me. It is a really trippy thought to think that the most powerful men in Australia are just like, watch this guy in Sydney with a microphone saying about me. <laughs> Some guy. That's incredible. And that is the perfect segue into uh, this podcast topic, which I wanted to talk about, which is power. That's right. Yeah. That's what we're here for. Very general, but the reason I wanted to talk about power is this. I had a few other topics I wanted to talk to you about. But then I thought, well, power is so in, it's such an intrinsic component of basically every discussion we have when we talk about human behavior, when we talk about politics, when we talk about culture. So I just want to unpack our thoughts on power. And the main question I want to ask is, uh, is power, well, I, do, would, you, would you say that power is corrupting in any circumstance? No. No? I'd say that power is neutral. I'd say that power is a magnifier of the personality that you are. If you're a selfish person and you get power, you're going to use it to enrich yourself 
You're going to use it to set yourself up for life. You're going to use it to make favors for you. But if you have a very altruistic outlook on life, I think that power is going to flow out into society. Sure. I think that that actually is. I would like to know where the idea that absolute power corrupts absolutely comes from. And I would like to test that and see if that's actually true. Because I, I think it might come from something else. It's kind of like the, the, the concept that, you know how you always hear money is the root of all evil, but that's actually not what the Bible teaches. And I think it actually is the most important teaching in the Bible, which is that the love of money is the root of all evil. Sure. Essentially what they're saying is if you're obsessed with money and that's all you care about, okay, that's evil. So do you think in the same way, if you are obsessed with power just for the sake of having power, that's when it becomes corrupting? Yeah. If I think that these are all very superficial mm. um, aspirations in life. Money and power are superficial aspirations. Why well, do you want the money? Well, Why do you yes, want the power? That's the thing. For, they can be superficial if they're just uh, if you're just aspiring to those things in in and of themselves. But for a lot of really meaningful things to ha- happen and to take place, you often need money and power. Yes. Yeah, but that's the whole point. Where is your motivation in life? Sure, sure. So, so another yeah, go on. Well, it's, it's, look, I've often thought about this, and I always think about this because, first off, it's one of the things that I really that really sticks in my mind that Jordan Peterson says, and I think that this is why he really hits, um, particularly our generation. He has a certain way of phrasing things that is kind of, it's really what John Stewart was very good at, which is just like, I always thought that thought, but you said it in a much more concise, memorable way. Mm-hmm. But my thought was a much more, it was nowhere near as clean and cutting as what you said. And I think that one of the things that he said is that if you uh, don't work on yourself at all, you will have this image in your head that you're a good person. The reality of the situation is that you're going to be a mildly bad person if you don't strive to improve yourself in any way. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the default. That essentially you're just going to be a baby your entire life. And babies are an extremely self-absorbed entity. They think they're the center of the universe. Uh, they, you know, they, they just throw tantrums whenever they don't get exactly what they want. Right, and so as soon as that person gains any power, the power becomes an extension of those particular traits. They become an extension of those traits. Okay. And th- I think that a lot of power is inherited as a result of that, and those people didn't have to work on themselves to get the power in the first place. Okay. So then, well, I would uh, I'd ask you, do you think a human being can be perfect? Because if we're saying that power is just an extension of the individual and a human being, because I don't think a human being can really achieve, well, particularly moral perfection because we're never truly immune to our biological instincts. And as a result, in any position of power, there will be some people who have definitely worked on themselves more than other people, but you can never truly uh, be sure that you are not at least abusing that power to some degree. No. No. And that's the whole point, is that, yes, that, okay, well, look, see, that's what I'm saying, is that, look, does absolute power corrupt absolutely? I would argue it doesn't. Is it corrupting? I agree with that. Yeah, I don't think it corrupts absolutely. Is it corrupt? Well, actually, I think that it is corrupting, though. 
Yeah, well, this is actually something that... To different degrees, dependent on the individual. But it always will be corrupting to some, to some extent. Because we, are, we can never truly be perfect individuals. Yeah. The counter-argument to this is, I can't remember her name, I think it's Diane Sawyer. She interviewed Saddam Hussein. Mm-hmm. But see, this is what she was saying as well. Fidel Castro and Saddam Hussein had absolute power in their countries. Yeah. She was saying that talking to Fidel Castro, he put you at ease. He liked talking a lot. He talked for hours on end. And he'd be very interested in your life. Okay, sure. When, he talked to, when she talked to Saddam Hussein, she could see that everyone around him was extremely nervous, very scared. And when she asked certain questions, and it was no way near a hardball interview. Obviously, you wouldn't get that kind of access if it was. You never get that kind of access with any politician, let alone a dictator of a country, if you're going to ask hardball questions. But she was asking certain questions that if anyone else said them, Saddam Hussein would have them tortured and killed. Right. <laughs> right? So if they knew the rules in that society and they were yeah. looking at Saddam Hussein and even they could just re- read certain facial expressions on him, just maybe this, okay. and they go... And you could see the panic and fear in their faces because he had that much power. Yeah. And what she observed about it was that Saddam Hussein lived in this universe where anything he said was true. That was his okay. reality because anything that he said, people just bowed to him and said, okay, that's fine. And he had the, 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 he had the power to just look at someone, point at them, and they'd be killed. So then in his mind, it wasn't even an abuse of power. It was the right thing to do. Because if he By believes everything is yes. true. Yeah. Everything is the right decision to that man. Well, then that poses the question, how do we even define an abuse of power? I don't know. I think it honestly comes down to what are your motivations? And this is why I'm always such an avid defender of China when everyone brings up the huge human rights violations and things. I think that the governing powers there, yes, they might be corrupt. Yes, they might be... Um, brutal. But there is a motivation in China that is beyond themselves. They're clearly trying to build a great society. It's apparent just looking at Shanghai and Beijing. So you think the ends justify the means in that particular situation? Uh, I am a huge proponent of ends justify the means. I wouldn't be if I lived in one of those societies, probably. I'd I'd be dead. You'd be dead. (laughs) Well, this this sort of press would uh, get us both killed or at least locked away somewhere. Re-educated at the very least. But the sure. thing is that um, it's, it's very difficult. I think because I study politics so much, you start having this view of the world of... Stalin had this great saying where he'd say that uh, one person's death is a tragedy, a million is just a, t- a statistic. In that when you hear on the news, you know, 57 people died in a car crash, you go, oh. But if you see an image of some little girl that was kidnapped, you'll feel much more pangs of emotion to that little girl because it's personalised the person. But honestly, I think that what happens when you start studying politics a lot is you get reverse Stalin syndrome. I don't really give a shit about the individual anymore. Like, I actually just look at (laughs) stats and numbers and I go, oh, okay, that's moving in the right direction. Do that. It's And at the end of the day, is that more psychopathic or is just caring about one person more psychopathic? Because it's many of those little girls that are dying if you don't make that decision... It's just you're not seeing them. Sure. So, I, I, yeah, like, I, I think when it comes to power, for instance, yeah. 
is that is that corrupting? Is that corrupting if it's you're very just interesting actually? Because yeah, the, the, well, the, my mind immediately went to the idea of what you were talking about before in regards to Saddam, and then also China, which is that to them that is not that would not be a corruption of power because they are still on target for their specific goal, which is to create the perfect society, or for Saddam's case, which is that everything he says is correct and true and the country needs to move in his direction. To me, an abuse of power would have to also be a realisation of the individual where their values have been compromised in order to either maintain their power or to just exert power over an enemy. So, for example, if you personally are really high up in the Chinese government and you and you think the individual does have the right to free speech or, or whatever, so hypothetically, I'm sure none of them do, but, um, <laughs> but then you compromise that in order to maintain. So if a journalist is criticizing you or something and, and you send them to the prison or whatever you do, that then is an abuse of power because you've compromised your values for, uh, and to better yourself. But then I guess then that does pose a very interesting question, which is the, the, the Chinese government who aren't actually compromising their values because their values are we want to create the perfect society and as a result we're going to use our power to silence, dissent or whatever it is they do. From our perspective, that's an abuse of power, but from their perspective, it's not, is it? No. But the other question is, do you even have the power in the first place if you have to compromise? You you might have more yeah. power than another individual. Right. But you don't have absolute power. I'm not talking about... Uh, I'm just talking about his power in general. I'm not talking about his absolute power. His power, power in general corrupting. Yeah. See, yeah, okay. If you're going to say it like that, yes, power would have to be corrupting because you'd always have to be compromising your principles and especially when you come to a quote-unquote Western democracy. Would you always have to be? Always. If you want to get anything done. In fact, actually, there's this great saying what, from... What do you mean? How so? Okay. A really good example of that is what's happening in the Labour Party now. So they went to the last election with a very bold agenda. Yes. And they were basically saying to the elites of this society, you don't get everything you want from now on. We're going to take away, uh, you know, franking credits from you. Um, we're going to take away negative gearing. We're going to take away all these little tax loopholes that you've been exploiting that have just been progressively draining the budget yeah. and indebting the country. And the elites fought back and said, no, you're not. And so they got voted out, essentially. That was long and the short of it. But now what's happening, and this is why everyone in the Labour Party is now going, to, they've lost their soul. Because Anthony Albanese is basically saying, like, he, he's buddying up with the elites. He's giving Labour a new face. He's doing what Tony Blair did to the Labour Party in the UK, which is making it Rupert Murdoch friendly, kind of just making a more friendly version of the Tories. That's what the Labour Party is becoming right. now. So is it sort of you have to play the game to change the game? You have to play the game to change the game. And I am totally on board with that idea because I understand that if you just stay there with your namby-pamby principles and look, there's certain policies that I don't like about the Greens at all. There's certain policies that I think, yeah, obviously that's the better way to do it. But the thing is, are they ever going to be government? 
And the answer is no, because they piss off too many power bases. And so they will never, ever form government. Um, so if you're the Labour Party, there's this great saying that I think should just be the mantra of the Labour Party and everybody that doesn't agree with it should essentially be executed or just join the Greens. Go away. Like, th their job is not to be a purist party. Their job is to govern. It's a completely sure. different thing. It's filled with compromises. And so I think that the question is, that what Gough Whitlam made the mantra of the Labour Party when he was campaigning, and then it changed when he was in government, but you know, the, the mantra that he had in power was only the impotent are pure. I think that that's an incredible mantra for life. As in, I say a lot of things that I look back on a few years later and I think I wouldn't have said that Impotent now. In, in, in what sense? Powerless? Powerless. Sure. Only the impotent are pure. So maybe he's actually, he's actually identified the exact opposite of absolute power corrupts absolutely. He's saying that powerless people are the pure ones. And actually, that's something that Jordan Peterson always talks about, which is that purity is weak. Yeah. You can't just have these ideal principles in life. You have to be flexible with reality. It's that idea that the map is not the territory. Okay. So what's the conclusion from that? That Are you saying that in order to get power for the... Well, for, yeah, in this particular context, the Labour Party, they need to compromise on their principles? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, politicians are one sector of power. Yeah. But there's many sectors of power, and well, they're not the, the most exactly, powerful yeah. sector. I'm not talking about just politics. I think the getting power is different to when you actually have the power, though. Is it? You still have to compromise. Otherwise, that power will go away quickly. It might be different well, in China. It's hard to say. It's hard to analyse whether they're abusing that power because they don't actually have the power yet. But I suppose they're abusing their own principles in order to get the power. So when the lust for power in itself is corrupting. That can be a conclusion you draw from that. The lust for power, yeah, yeah the, the lust for power is in self-corrupting. And I think that just... I don't actually have a problem with corruption. I have a problem with a certain level of corruption. But the idea of corruption, even actually my... Uh, Pakistani friend Ali from the other podcast, he's always talking about this with, when it comes to Pakistan. It's probably exactly the same in India. It's These are third world countries. They're really... Their institutions don't work. Even basic things like that we take for granted, like a legal system. Yeah, it's electricity, water. Yeah, even more basic than a legal... Okay, this is the whole thing, right? Britain came into India and Pakistan, extremely poor societies, and put up all these lofty institutions that don't even work in Britain, let alone a country that is like 300 times poorer than them. Yeah, and like, it doesn't take into account the very different culture of those particular people. No, not at all. The legal, economic, the government systems have to have to take into account the culture of that particular nation state. But that's the the legacy of the British government is yeah, that both sure. of these countries, they have parliaments, they have court systems, and they're all based off British systems. Yeah, They might be a little bit different now because of the flavour, but he was essentially arguing two things about Pakistan. I, I almost guarantee it's exactly the same in India, but I don't know. He's essentially saying that Sharia law, which, you know, is the big no-no in Australian culture. They're just like, oh, we don't want any of that. It's barbaric. Yeah. But he's saying that in Pakistan, that works. 
here, that's barbaric and it's, it, it, you know, going back to the Stone Age or whatever. But See. there, if you're sitting there and you've got a rapist and then they have to go through the British legal system, you know, first of all, it's going to take years for them to go through the British legal system because of all the bureaucracy involved and there's just this huge backlog of other people and, you know, a rape wouldn't be anything yeah. in comparison to all the other crimes that they have to deal with. So you probably even just get people forgotten in the system. Then on top of that, when you get there, it'd be really easy to bribe the judge or whatever and just get off scot-free. There's all of these other factors that are involved because it's a poor system. When you're in Sharia law, it's just this thing of, did you rape this woman? Then you're stoned to death. Yeah. And so everybody just gets too scared to rape. And so the, the instances of rape are much lower in tribal areas of Pakistan than they are in uh, areas with relative population so, that are more quote-unquote civilised. But then what's that? Is that just an example where corruption and a corruption of power has actually had unintended positive consequences? No, it's actually an example of brute power. It's an example sure. of brute power. So the, the, all of modern, all Western society is sort of based off of two basic principles which is well actually i don't know is this what happens in india this is what happens in pakistan he's basically saying that in i don't know i actually i'm not one to comment all right okay um but he's saying that in western society western society is based off of the idea of freedom yeah it's all about individualism it's all about you know giving as much autonomy to the individual as possible pakistan is based off the idea of fairness and so the fact that they tried to put that system into Pakistan has had really weird negative consequences. In that society, not, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the cultural reasons is that like they need more, this is what Ali is arguing anyway, they need more brute power. They kind of just need it to be more open. It's kind of the same with China. Like A lot of the stuff there with the Hong Kong protests, a lot of it is based around the idea that Hong Kong... Uh, you know, should be its own society and China is saying, no, we want to pick your premiers from now on or like, you know, the, the ones that we allow you to elect. Yeah. They're just basically more honest about it. Like the same thing happens in Australia. So for a society to function... Uh, hang on. So for certain societies to function as optimally as possible, they actually need power concentrated more so than other societies like Western societies? That No, I would argue that actually I think that every society functions better if there's a, a better concentration of power. Okay. And, and now there's the proviso there is that like is, that, is the motivating factor of the power there purely in it for themselves? We're selfish animals, definitely. But some people are more empathetic and more altruistic mm. than other people. Well, and it makes sense that China is trying to better itself more so than other Western countries because they're still the small, the on a, on a global scale, their self-interest is to make China the superpower of the world. Yeah. So then those two, uh, those two girls tie into each other. So, okay, well, how about we talk about, I wanted to also talk about power, not just on a societal and uh, political level. Another big catalyst for this, uh, for this topic that I brought up was, I was having a conversation with uh, with this this girl a couple of weeks ago, and you know a common uh, topic thread that's constantly talked about um, on the internet and in this day and age is obviously the the uh, you know when we talk about masculinity and sexual harassment, rape culture, all of that sort of thing. 
And the discussion also came down to power because for me, it was all about, okay, men on average have physical power over women. Whereas there's a certain side to this argument now that says all of the abuse of power that men have over women is culturally learned. And we need to change the culture entirely. And then, then there will be no uh, abuse of power of men towards women. Whereas my argument was more, where there is power, there will always be some abuse. Now, I'm not denying a lot of it probably is cultural, but a lot of that abuse of, of the physical power men have over women, and not just that, if there's a bigger guy with a smaller guy, they have physical power over that person, and they will use it if in a particular, in a certain situation. So then that informs how we deal with the issue, because if we say that it's entirely cultural, then we're assuming again that the human is the human being can be perfect and we can employ certain policies where we eliminate uh, these sorts of you know horrendous acts altogether or is it more an an element that is it more an argument that there will always be some degree of hardship and abuse and all that sort of thing so we need to uh, ensure that people can handle that as best as possible. No. That was a very wordy... No, but I, I, I understand but, you know, what you're saying. Yeah. I think Paul Keating said it best when he said power's primal. I don't think it's a culturally learned idea. I, there, yeah, there, there, I there, there's an element of that in that, uh, you know, somebody who is born to rich parents is going to have a sense of entitlement that someone from a poor family probably won't have. And I do say probably because some of them may have that. But yeah. the question is, if they are at a party and it's some reedy, weedy rich guy that's always gotten everything he wants and he's at a party with some black dude from the Bronx that grew up in a ghetto, um, who's going to be more dominant in that situation? And I would argue that nine times out of ten, probably 99 times out of 100, it's going to be the black dude. He endured hardships... He's got like a he's got a deeper set voice. He's probably taller. He's got a more uh, domineering figure. And at the end of the day, all of these little social cues that kick off mm. that are the same things that happen in ape societies. Mm. Now, at the end of the day, there's yeah. the, the thing of when it comes to ape societies, there's also the thing of physical dominance. But I think that we are our societies actually reflect sure. chimpanzee societies. Well, we can a lot, never right? be entirely immune to our visceral. Uh, our visceral interpretations of power. No. Because we see someone who's a big, imposing figure. There's an immediate reaction we're going to have to that, and we're going to conduct ourselves in a way very differently. To You're going to be a lot more appeasing. Exactly. I mean, uh, Jordan Peter. this is one of the things that Jordan Peterson gets criticised on a lot, which is there's a, there's a discussion he had with, I can't remember who the person was. It's one of the, like, turf feminists. I can't remember who it was. But he said... When men are speaking with other men, there's always an underlying threat of physical violence if you step outside of a certain boundary. Mm -hmm. and it's not just Jordan Peterson who's talked about that. Chris Rock has jokes about yeah. that. Yeah. Bill Burr talks about that. And how does that uh, underlying knowledge of power affect the way we conduct ourselves? And can you ever mitigate against that? I don't think you can. I think that's very, that's just intrinsic to our nature. No. But what you can learn 
is strategies to make yourself more dominant. This is why I think that power is not necessarily a bad thing. It's about why you want the power. Because again, you can learn all of these self-help traits that make you a more dominant, imposing figure. But, but, but what's the means? But when you have that, what I'm, what I'm sort of more interested in is when you have that power, how do we know when it will be abused and to what extent will it be? Are there certain factors that you could look at a person and say that person is more likely to abuse any power they may have than this other person? Yeah, I reckon there is. Yeah, and what are they? You know what? I was honestly thinking about this the other day, and it, yeah, it just goes back to that point of if someone is a bad person, they're going to abuse power. I think some dead giveaways of a bad person. How do they treat children and animals? That's yeah. the first one, because they are intrinsically weaker than you, mm. and they have less power than you do. And the question, how fair are you to that dog? How fair are you to that kid? Are you putting in boundaries between you and it? Are you giving your power away to the kid? Are you saying, I'm the adult in this situation and I'm going to make sure that you're safe? Hmm. Are you saying that? Or are you just saying, I'm the adult in this situation, so it's my way or the highway? All of these things kind of, you can see it when people interact with babies and when they interact with animals. That's a really good, that's a really good observation. Yeah, and I agree with that entirely. There's a certain... There's an intuitive uh, feeling of trust you get with someone who is really good with animals and really good with kids. Yep. As soon as I see someone that animals respond to, I think that has got to be a nice person. Surely. Because they, and again, it's another thing that happens when you do naturally have less power. And this is something that I think is is very interesting about male-female dynamics. I think that in general... Look, men have more physical power, but women have more emotional power. And the reason they have more emotional power is because they've had to learn to counteract the physical dominance. Yeah, yeah, very true. And um, as a result of that, I think that another thing that women have is they're much more intuitive than men are because they've had to learn who's a trustworthy man and who isn't a trustworthy man and to make that decision a lot quicker than guys do. Because again, there's this kind of politeness between guys of the... If things go out of hand, we'll just duke it out. But with women, it's just like, (laughs) if this goes pear-shaped, I get raped or killed or whatever, right? So they need to think of ways to, you know, is this man trustworthy or not? Very quickly. I think that that's naturally what happens. But as a result of that, I think that, and it's very reflective in chimp society where there is an alpha male um, and he is at the top. And there might be a gang of other alpha males that helps that guy get to the top, this small little oligarchy of chimps that kind of controls the society. But the thing is, at the end of the day, what the women are are the voters. Because if they reject the alpha male and they don't give him sex and they kind of snub him, it gives off signals to the other chimps that he shouldn't be there. And so they try and fight for the position of alpha male. So they actually determine who... The alpha male is, and it's very reflective in voting today as well. Like, you're always trying to win over the female voting base. You want those Oprah women to be like, he's a nice man, you know? You want that attitude. And so, but, uh, and below the women is the majority of men. Yeah. I think that's where it goes. Even though they have the physical dominance, it's just you can be more dominant by emotions, particularly in this society. Oh, but yeah. even in chimp society, you can be more dominant with your emotions. Oh, that's true, yes. And I was talking about that very specific instance of uh, harassment and sexual abuse and things like that. But I agree with you entirely. And this is another trippy that- thing that I think, and this is obviously going to like, look, I'm going to have to be very careful about what I say about this. But 
Uh, look, I'm not going to say have, it as bluntly as that. We don't have any sponsors. Yeah, I, fine, fuck it. Look, the thing is, when you see a lot of women that are in abusive relationships and then you hear that kind of like, oh, she deserves it. No, there's the obvious overlying thing of like, no, no one deserves to be physically abused. Obviously, that's that's true. But the thing is, if you're staying in that situation, it's because you have a low self-esteem. In fact, you probably wouldn't have even dated the guy in the first place if you have a high self-esteem. If you have a high self-worth, you're going to look at that guy and be like, because that's the thing. When I look at guys that I find out later beat women... It's not a secret. It's not like this huge revelation most of the time. Maybe, I think, no, actually, every guy that I've learned has hit women afterwards. You, you look at them and you think, yeah, that guy's an ape. Okay, so the counter argument to the first point you made, which is that the women, sh- if they had higher self-esteem, they wouldn't stick around. Sometimes they, it's by necessity that they have to stick around. Either they're economically dependent or they have kids or there are other factors that may not allow them to leave immediately. That's true. And they could enter because of, you know, they were at a certain level of confidence and then they just get beaten down like a beaten dog. You know, they, they, sure. there is a definite demeanor and it's the most heartbreaking thing I've ever seen in my life. You yeah, can tell yeah. when a dog is beaten. You, you, you know when it's like it's got a, it's a hang. Sad. It's a very sad sight, you know. Um, but then when we talk about, I think we talked about emotional abuse a couple of podcasts ago, or we touched on it. Often that is a reflection of the insecurity of the particular, the abuser has themselves. So they want to exert power over someone because they are not happy with their self-image either. And they have very low self-esteem. So in order for them to feel good, they need to exert power over the other person. And I think relationships are just a microcosm of the way power can uh, can be manipulated and, and, and can be used to abuse other people on the same way it can be used on a political level where it's if that person is a very insecure person who has a bad self-image and constantly needs to control other people, they are much more likely to abuse their power. Yes. And so it all comes down to, well, the, yeah, the sort of being mindful and the regulation of the self. Yes. And knowing when you have internal flaws that could manifest as an abuse of power yeah i think that is another indicator of somebody who i would never want touching power is how self-absorbed are they yeah and it's a very hard thing to actually tell someone who is in that position because for example we go back to the saddam hussein uh, instance he genuinely believed that what he was doing was truthful and righteous because he thought everything he said was true. So you can't just tell someone like that, hey, you're abusing your power. In the same way, I'm sure most abusers in relationships, whether they're emotional abusers or physical abusers, probably have some kind of justification as to why they're doing it and why it is the right thing to do. I need to control this person. They don't know what's good for them. Mm. So in their mind, they're actually doing the right thing. Mm. Which it's is a kind scary of, thought. It's isn't a scary it? thought, and you have to kind of externally. This is why, uh, yeah, in in those situations, that that is why. Uh, traditionally, yeah, in chimp societies, women kind of were the kingmakers, and it is because they had to be a much more emotionally acute. And so that kind of just reflects out onto who should be gaining power, and like, yeah, they they kind of knew that this person. Uh, you can sort of intuitively see this in a lot of people, what their intentions are, I think. 
Yeah. What what motivates that person? But some and people, particular psychopaths, are very good at faking it, that, those sorts of things. Yeah. Psychopaths For a certain can, amount of can, time. Can really make the... They, they have... They, well, one of them has no sense of empathy and then the other one is really good at manipulating the empathy in other people. One of them's a sociopath, one of them's a psychopath. I don't know which is which. But the point is they have that emotional power over other people and can manipulate that to their aims. Yeah. And this is the thing as well, is that power by its very nature is kind of a sociopathic uh, pursuit. But it's so... Because even when I try to analyse my own power and times I might have abused it, I look at very... And this might seem very insignificant and almost facetious, but I look at times uh, previously when I've deleted certain comments on a YouTube video or on Facebook. And I've always been like the most strident pro-free speech guy. But that is an example where I've, you know, in my little bubble of power, I've abused it because I didn't like what that person said in the comments. I'm like, no, nah, I don't like this. <laughs> but it's that same mentor. If I had, but that's a, what is scary to me is that if I had the power of Saddam Hussein, it is the same thing as me being like, I don't like that journalist killed them. Yeah, they're out. Which damn that, true. That's a very scary thing to me. That means how, who am I to even judge someone like Saddam Hussein? Because in my little example of when I had power, I did the exact same thing he did. Wow. Damn. All I, all I did was delete. You might think, oh, all you've done is delete a comment. It's an abusive No, it's power. the same it's thing. It's just it's an exact same thing. And, and when I thought about that, I, I, I was really scared. Damn. Well, this is the whole thing, man. This is why everyone that always says, you know, like, Isaac Butterfield for PM or like Friendly Judy's for PM and stuff. It's just like, no. No, dude. You don't want us as prime ministers. You're going to kill people. You want somebody... Yeah, you want somebody... A, you can take a lot of abuse. You're right. That's the yeah. first thing. You want somebody who's like got really thick skin and is an extremely principled person. Really sure of themselves, yeah. Or do you need to have a discussion about how much, concentra- how much power is concentrated? Then that was what you were talking about before, a lot of societies work well when there is a certain concentration of power but you know what i think it is yeah it's, it's, it's okay all right it's what about thing. this if you the the smallest ego and this is actually a, a saying from um the Tao Te Ching, which is like the wisest book that's ever been written mm. um and like god there's so many teachings in it that you meditate on for a long time and they just keep going more and more profound but one of them was that he kind of ranks the type of leaders. Yeah. And he says, and it's basically the same thing that came from the book Good to Great, which is just about which companies last the longest um, and, you know, have a legacy. Like once that st- superstar CEO steps down, does the business continue to be great? Mm. Essentially what he's saying is that, uh, first of all, there is the ineffective leader that nobody respects. Mm-hmm. Then there's the one that people, and, and is ineffective. Then there's the type of leader that gets respect um, out of fear. Um, That's the next level of leader. Mm -hmm. Then the next level of leader is the leader that gets respect out of admiration. And he's saying that the top leader is the one that makes the people think they did it themselves. Okay. So there's no ego in that leader. 
And what is ego? Yeah, Essentially, right, right. ego at the end of the day. I really like well, this description. Yeah, but if on. they're still considered, if they're still very admired by the people who they are uh, leading, could you not say that there would have been an element of self-interest that that pushed them to think, okay, if I become that third type of leader, my legacy will be the most long-lasting and the strongest. Well, yeah, it's third. It's it's still a good leader. Sure. I would say that Obama is that level of leader. He was a leader that, you know, strive for admiration. And, you know, given the circumstances, America is an extremely corrupt country to be, follow, uh, to, to be ruling. Like, you know, he, he did good given the circumstances. But this mm. is the difference between a leader like Bernie Sanders and a leader like Obama. It, it's, it's even just in... His very, uh, his very slogan, like, Obama's was hope and change. It was all just about Obama's going to change America, this one man. Whereas Bernie Sanders is not me, us. He's empowering the people of America and saying that, you know, I might be the leader, but you have to lead yourselves. He's constantly deflecting attention back onto that idea that, you know, only good change comes from when millions of people rise up and demand change. So he's inspiring people to become leaders themselves. That's the difference between your Obama leader and then the leader that you know just makes people think they did it themselves. And so, yes, the person that gets there is admired and they might be very competent and they might be doing things that are in the goodwill of the, pe- of the people, but at the end of the day, you know, you're one person. There's no way that you're going to incite as much change as uh, you know, millions of people even if they're nowhere near as competent as you, if you can get them to feel inspired mm. and moving in a certain direction, that's going to elicit more positive change. That's true leadership. Well, it comes down to the idea of be the change you want to see in the world. Be the change and you want you, to see in the world. If you, as a leader, can encourage people to make that change as individuals, that's a very powerful tool. And that's actually something that like Brandon Birch is always talking about when he talks about power, is that the most powerful people that he's ever met in his life are the ones that aren't seeking power. Yeah. They're the ones that are kind of like, they're seeking, he says, they're not seeking power, they're seeking to empower others. Yeah. Doesn't that sound intuitively like a good leader? Definitely. And there's not much ego in that. Maybe there's some ego in that, like, I'm the one that incited the change. Yeah, that's the thing. You don't know if they're... Because if they know that that fact that the most admired and the most respected leaders who have the longest lasting legacy are the ones who are that third type, then their self-interest mechanism would, would push their behavior towards that third type of leader. Yeah. But I guess even then, that's where, and that's where their self-interest is still helpful to everyone else. If you know, I think you're right. Do you get what I'm saying? No, I get yeah. what you're saying. I think that that's exactly what it is. Is like at the end of the day, that's the type of leader that you should be inspired. Like that's, it's it's not giving away your power. It's kind of yeah. That's the best word. Empowering other people. So then, what what if someone said to you, the Chinese government, well, a large element of what they run is fear. If you do something wrong and you step out of line. You get sent to wherever you get sent. But their long-term goal is to empower those same people. 
where do they come into the equation then? Well, yeah, they, they would be leaders out of fear. But that, this is this is what I'm saying, is that when it comes to national scales, look, leading a nation is an extremely difficult business. And on top of that, it's you know fraught with look, all types of different corruption. What I'm saying is that I would think that Chinese leadership is the second level of leadership, right? It's sure. the one that leads by fear. But I would say that the long- Western democracies lead by incompetency. So they're the fourth type of leader. It's just, it's, right. it's such a... Every now and then you would get your, your Bernie Sanders or your Franklin D. Roosevelt's or your John Curtin's or whatever, the, these people that are able to move a nation. But in general, in a democracy, it's going to be run by incompetent people. By the very nature of the beast, because these leaders are just being installed by powers that want them to be incompetent. Because that's where the real power lies, right? Okay. So I think that that's the, that is the difference, is that, you know, on a national scale, truly there's very few people that I can even... You could look to in history that are type four leaders. In fact, there's very few businesses, and businesses are much easier to control than a country, that are fourth-level leaders. There's a few examples of that. That's what the whole book Good to Great is about. Hmm. But and that's what he's saying that the, these are real diamond in the rough people. You ha- really have to stretch back through history to even find a handful of these people. What about when people step out of line? When people who are under your well control, if you will, step out of line and do something that is not in the interests of whether it's the nation or I would even go into in a, again in a more personal context, a strict parent, for example, who instills a certain level of fear in their child for something that they know in the long term is for the benefit of that child. So don't, you know, don't cross the road uh, without looking twice or, you know, don't don't cross the road without doing it at the green man. And they, they're very, they're very strident with that and instill, instill a certain level of fear into that child about the consequences if they crossed at just a general point in the road versus at the actual pedestrian crossing. What do you mean? So that that's still a leader instilling fear into someone they have control over for positive means. Yeah. And that's... This is the messiness of life, right? Yeah, so where's there a, is there a context there where the... What is it? The third type leader... Is there something that a third type leader would do differently to a second type leader there? In Just take that little example of parenting... When it comes to I don't, anything with when it comes to parenting, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, there's a certain level of fear that a lot of parents will instill. That's true. To get the best out of the the children, you know. God, actually, a very good example of that I think is uh, my girlfriend's parents because. Yeah, Asian parents. Asian <laughs> parents. Yeah, well, that's Indian the, parents. Most too. Yeah, Asian and Indian parents. I know all about they, that. They really instill fear. And again, it's that same thing. Is it's like oh these God. cultures. It, it's a reflection. Because <laughs> don't you think that like Asian and Indian societies they respect power, whereas in Western democracies and, and societies there's no respect for power. There's this constant thing of just like fuck you. You can't tell me what to do. Like there's Definitely that attitude. In Australia, I don't know. Uh, in America, there's a very different admiration and adoration, particularly of celebrities, and of people in leadership positions versus Australia. Australia definitely has a 
huge element of tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. Look, America tries to aim for that. They're not, but they try and aim for that stage three leader. They try and aim for that. He's the one. They put the allure of that. And good for him. Yeah, and celebrate that guy for being there. They 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 try and instill that, and yeah, Australia's just like fuck you, dickhead. You like they've got that attitude. So but it's it, that is reflective in white parenting. White parenting in general is very incompetent. Whereas, you know, Asian whoa, and Indian parenting is a lot about fear. When you say incompetent, where are the incompetencies? Most kids that grow up in the West, and it, you know, a couple of generations you remove a couple of generations of immigrant kids, they adopt these attitudes. Um, they're little shits. That's why most of the kids that get into Sydney law or, uh, you know, UNSW law, um, you know, it might be like a lot of kids that just went to private schools and whatever and they just get, you know, the right connections and the right tutors and they just tick all the boxes and whatever. Yeah, that's all fine. But the ones that come from, you know... Uh, middle-class background. There's not many white kids from middle-class backgrounds that make it into Sydney law. It's a lot of Indians and Asian kids. Yeah, That's the incompetencies oh. of it, right? They, 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 white parents have this kind of attitude of just huh. being like, oh, yeah, they're on level with me. They kind of White parents in general give their power away to their kids. And you know who else does that actually a lot, I think? Middle Eastern parents, what I've noticed. They seem to do that a lot. They seem to put their kids up on a pedestal. And it's the same thing with white parents. They just think that like, oh, you're so special and great. And they have that attitude. Whereas like Indian and Asian parents are like, you're a little shit, you're a worm, and you will do exactly what I tell you. And that morphs them into the type of person that they want. That's one way of doing it. But actually the way that my girlfriend's parents did it, I think from just looking at it and from what she was telling me about her childhood experiences, they put a lot of belief into her. And so she obeyed. She lived up to their standards because yeah, she was saying she didn't that. want to break that trust. Yeah, there's that. Well, with Indian parents, there's also a lot of guilt tripping as well. Yeah. You don't want to yeah. upset the mother. You don't want to upset the family. Yeah. Fear. It's a type of fear. Sure. And what? But what then is the... Is there not a an extreme sort of bastardization of that particular style of parenting where the child then becomes really insecure because they can never live up to the parents' lofty expectations and ends up having severe emotional problems as a result. That's why the suicide rate is so high in a lot of these Asian countries, because the child becomes second in maths versus first, and they're like, oh, no, I've disappointed mum and dad. I've got to go kill myself now. It's you another look at, offshoot of fear, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but you look at that extreme compared to, yeah, the one that... The generalized white parenting, which is like, it doesn't matter what you come in maths, we still love you. You're, you're special. You're special. You're good at maths. And then you anyway. give them, you just give them too much confidence, <laughs> which you could see that in today's society. Yeah. So there's, a, there's, I think there's a middle ground there. I don't think. Well, it sounds like from what your girlfriend, from what you've said about your girlfriend's uh, childhood experience, when you can inspire the kids to do those things versus make them act in a certain way out of fear. There can be elements of fear. You know, if they step out of the bounds, you need to reprimand them. But the inspiration is a lot, is, is, is more powerful. Way more powerful. Yeah. Because then it, it's embodied in them. It's, it takes on a life of their own. Yeah. I always think this. There's always two motivators in life, right? Carrot and stick stuff. But it's always this idea of, you know, if I said to you right now, someone's going to steal $10,000 from you or someone's going to give $10,000 to you, most people are going to have more of an emotional response to, 
um, someone's taking $10,000 away from you as opposed to looking for that $10,000. And I think that that is the way that a good leader works is painting that picture of just like, you can go get the $10,000, not I'm going to take $10,000 away from you. Mm. Because think about the person that you would have to become to gain that extra $10,000. And that's where it starts happening. That's where you start having huge societal change. If you kind of instill a leadership culture as opposed to just having a culture instill leaders. Then maybe wouldn't some people, going back to the ethnic parenting styles, which is a very, I love that discussion as well. Um, <laughs> there's a sort of, there's a, there's a, well, there's a sort of a dark side to each style. So the Indian and Asian, the strict disciplinarian parenting, which is there's the inspirational parent, which is very strict and does punish the child as soon as they step out of the bounds, but they inspire the kids and constantly do give positive reinforcement when they do well. But then there is also the dark side of that, which is the parent who is, I would argue, abusing their power and maybe living vicariously through their child, sees their value through the achievements of their child and will just constantly reprimand the child when they don't live up to the perfect standard. So, oh, you didn't come first, you're useless, you're terrible. And so then the child feels like they can never actually please the parents and as a result, yes, maybe they are very hardworking and they're very studious, but there would be psychological issues that come with that. Yeah. And then maybe the more free range or whatever the you want to label the white style of parenting... I know a lot of, you know, well, I think Free range. Working, cla- <laughs> working class white parents are very different to sort of upper middle class white parents. Yeah. The working class white parents are like, you bloody toughen up your little sook, work hard. Well, that can be, it depends. But when you say to the kids, yeah, we love you no matter what, do whatever you want, go to the parties, you don't have to study, don't just, the, ma- the main thing is that you're happy. Well... There are certain elements of that where they're taking into account that sort of inspirational style of the, the, the good side of the disciplinarian parents, but then they're also not giving the boundaries. So, again, it, it comes down to there's, I think, a, a middle ground there that is the most effective. But I think what you're kind of uh, getting at kind of goes back to the point that it's just like, are you genuinely trying to do the best by your kid. So the, the, the parent that is like yep. living vicariously yep. through the kid is not. And it's an extension They're of doing themselves. What the, it's an extension of themselves. Yeah. So it all comes down to, wow, because we all have power in some regard. Yeah. And it all comes down to how, well, whether we've cleaned our room. What do you mean? <laughs> what? How? Yeah, cleaned how? the metaphor. Yeah, I know, but like, explain it. Explain it in this context. Well, so we need to be aware of our own, uh, what do we value in life? Why do we value that? We need to be aware of our own uh, influences and why we're striving for, a certain, for certain things, if it's coming from a place of insecurity or if it's coming from a place of positivity. And if we've if we've uh, controlled our, ourselves and uh, tamed the demons within us, then we would be better suited to a position of power because we wouldn't have these uh, these negative negative uh, aspects that we need to that we that we would inevitably 
pass on to the people that we're in control of. So you know what actually is really important? It just comes down to the self again. It comes down to the self. But the thing is that, yeah, I think it's like if if you're looking to exercise power and you're looking to exercise it well and for you to move up in life, I think you have to have a strong value system. I think you I think that is probably the most important thing to actually just write down what your values are and instill that consciously be uh, you know yeah like it's it's the same thing as like a mission statement in a company those are usually on average do much better than ones that are just like I don't yeah. know we just sell oranges yeah. and I would go even a further a, a, a step further back and analyze why you have those particular values where are those where where's the inspiration for those values coming from yeah, why is that important? Yeah, why is a certain thing important to you? Again, is that, and then self-analyze again. Know thyself. Like, where is that coming from? Is it coming from a place of uh, of darkness or of positivity? True. True, because if you're looking for, yeah, e- 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 okay, even if you're going for it for something, it's, look, let's just use the standard example of money, right? Hmm. If you're just looking for money for the sake of money, what is that? Most of the time, it's just that you feel inadequate. Yeah. You're, you're just trying to satiate like a demon within your own head. Sure. If you're, if, if you're looking for money to say, At, yeah. And the, well, those people, my, my guess is those people aren't even as effective as obtaining as much money as the people who are doing it for other reasons, for more virtuous reasons. They're going to work harder. Sure. That's the other thing. Yeah, and they're more, I would assume they're more likely to to show off the money they have and spend it in lavish, reckless ways, which is not a good strategy for earning money. Yeah. It's a, man, this <laughs> brings me back. There's one show I was watching the other day called The Secrets of the Money Masters and all these rich investment bankers or whoever they were, just investors, were talking about their secrets. Do you know what the first secret was? It just shows how wealthy a country we live in is. The first secret was uh, don't spend more money than you earn. Man, What kind of a secret is that? (laughs) How stupid do you have to be to the, I want to make money. Oh, I was spending more money than I earned. Oh, (laughs) that's the big secret. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, Oh, that triggered me so much. (laughs) No, but but it just shows what you said is previously is correct. That these surely someone who actually thinks that is a secret to become rich is someone who has clearly grown up with massive amounts of wealth. Yeah. Because when you have massive amounts of wealth, yes, if you don't spend more than you earn, that wealth will just uh, increase in value tenfold. Whereas when you grow up, well, if you grow up with immigrant parents, first of all, and if you grow up in uh, lower or middle class society, you know that. You know yeah. not to spend more money yeah. than you yeah. How stupid are you to not know that? I mean, unless, well, of course, if you're making an investment or something, if you have a loan, but if you're just spending more than you earn, that, I can't believe, I just couldn't believe, I was so, <laughs> I, I was so triggered by that. The, just the fact that it was called the secrets to the money masters or something like <laughs> what kind of a secret is that you see it My ingrained God. all the time though how dumb 
But that just shows again, like the reason that you would be spending more money than you earn is because you're trying to fill up something. Because the thing is, I remember that it, one of the truest things that Bill Burr ever said was just like, "How many spoons do you need?" At the end of the day, if you're going to be, tr- <laughs> tr- tr- yeah, if you're going to be, do you reckon? That's so funny. It's like such a Bill Burr thing to say. Yeah, I, I really like, come enjoy. Out. How many spoons do you need? <laughs> How how rich do you like? How much? It's it's just showing off at a certain point. Sure. I liked the fact when I was poor and lived a really Spartan life. Sure, I loved that. Yeah, yeah. There's a certain. I mean, if you if you whether or not it's ideal to live that way in today's society is questionable. But these kind of nomad hippie types who just couch surf or clearly don't see their value in uh, financial resources. Are very happy people. Yeah, <laughs> they're very, very, very happy people. I think there's something to be said about uh, quality, and in the in the society we do live in, there. Are, I the older I've gotten, I do, I am happy to spend more if I'm getting a really good quality from that extra money. But again, I wouldn't spend more than I earn. <laughs> Secrets of <laughs> <the> money masters, <laughs> idiots. <laughs> Yeah, look, that, that's the whole thing is actually when it comes to wealth principles, it's pretty straightforward. There's actually not that many secrets. Yes, okay, it, look, if you're a genius investor like Warren Buffett, but at the end of the day, you could be Warren Buffett. You just need to, it's just, is that your thing in life? Do you just like making money? Since if you wanted to, you could just focus on that and get really good at it in life. But it's just, again, values are different. Uh, if you want to look, obviously if you want to be a comedian, but the thing is that, yeah, if you want to be a comedian, your values are obviously different. The, the primary motivator there was definitely not money because 99% of them don't make a nickel. No. It's something else. It's, it's acceptance. It could or... be money because the, the thing with artistic pursuits is that the, uh, well, it's a sort of, it's that the top, there's a top 1% basically a microcosm of the actual yeah. the way we see society now is the, the top 1% who are multi-billionaires and then everyone else is struggling terribly yep so if you but, do one you might think oh, I might hit that 1% in but, comedy or acting or yeah, whatever but is it, it can't be your primary motivator if you're going to be a comedian your primary motivator for money would be to become like a an investor or work in yeah. investment banking or something like that, if that was your primary yeah, motivation in life. And you know what? Even then, a lot of the time, what you're seeking really in most of these people, and it's just a really gross thing that I've noticed about the elites of society, because I, I don't know, this is what I really noticed when I was at university. Kids that were studying law were fascinated with me. Um, I was It was never mutual back to them. I, I despised most of them. And I think a lot of it is that they've been instilled by their parents that the biggest value in life is status. Law is such a status-driven degree, isn't it? Isn't it? It's so true. Because it just, I think, uh, a good point of evidence to prove that is something like less than 50% of people who study law actually go into law. Sounds about right. So clearly... People have ulterior motives in studying that degree. Yep. It's because of the status, yeah. There's I a, studied a, law. Yes. Therefore, That's I'm it. smart. Yeah. And That's successful. It. That's it. But the same could be said about 
Well, when it comes to Indian and Asian parents, medicine, for example. Yeah, medicine and law, always at the top. Engineering, yeah, okay, not great. If you can't get into medicine, you do engineering. Engineering, (laughs) exactly. But there's less status. I think there's actually less status in doing a medical degree than there is in doing... There's something about doing a law degree. It's sort of the... it's, It's the epitome of, like, upper class... Uh, not pretentiousness, but it is just such a status symbol. It is. It is. It's the Rolex of degrees. It is, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And that's why, like, yeah, these are always symbols in my mind that I think that you can actually really see. And this is what I... I do like this idea that artists move in and out of different sectors of society the most easily because they're kind of just fascinated in other sectors because they just yeah. see that they get inspiration from them, right? For sure. Um, so many lawyers I know. So from what I've heard, so I know this for a fact, but a lot of lawyers are just depressed. Yep. And very hedonistic. Yep. Well, because they have a lot of money. Well, they work ridiculous out, particularly if they're junior lawyers. Wow, isn't that scary? There's so much nepotism in law that it, even the lowest level lawyers are probably pretty upper class and went to private school. Or like you said, they just went, went to a selective school, Chinese Indians who worked extremely hard. Mm-hmm. But then even within that, there are people who have even more benefits of nepotism and, and get to partner a lot quicker than someone else. Yep. And on top of that, most people don't want to be doing law because law is extremely boring and it's it's such a regimented way of seeing the world. It's the exact opposite of what human beings are supposed to look at. So the, the only reason that you would be doing it, A, maybe if you're just an extremely shallow hedonistic person, you're doing it for status for yourself. But a lot of the time, I think that they're doing it basically to live up to their parents. But the, but the reason that they're living up to their parents is so that their parents can say, and again, it comes back to a really selfish modality that you're imparting onto your children of just like my son's at Sydney Uni (laughs) they're doing it just so that they can brag to their friends that in in their rich little bubble who don't actually give a shit about the kid in the first place and Mm. that their whole life is morphed Mm. just so that they can say some passing bragging comment while they're sitting around a pool what do you say what if someone I'm just trying to think of a counter argument Someone, there's probably a lot of law students that are listening to this podcast. And they know it's a sham. Yeah. Just get out of it. Really assess why are you doing that. That's the other primary motivator. And honestly, I can see it all the time. Again, if you don't because want like, to do it, don't do it. That's a good point. Don't do it. It's but the thing silly. is that what I see with, say, again, my friend Ali from the podcast and also uh, uh, Jack, who used to be the head of Young Labor, and now he's like works at local council um, as a, as a counsellor. Uh, both of them, when you go around the room in law, every single one of them, what do they say? Commercial law, commercial law, corporate law, commercial law, corporate law, because that's where all the money is. Yeah. That's all the status one. Then you get to Ali and Jack. Why do they want to study it? Constitutional law. So their motivations for doing it are completely different. Okay, well, then that answers my question, because I was going to say, what if someone was doing law to genuinely make a difference? They might want to do human rights law or something. Yep. Or become a, um, you know, one of, what are they, the public defense attorneys that if you mm. can't afford a lawyer, you get appointed one of them. Yep. 
and they are a different beast of person. They are wow. a completely different beast. Wow, because they'd get all, just as much, if not more, stress, but without any of that remuneration. <laughs> but they sleep well at night. That's true. The other people know that their life is a sham. And that's what happens. If your entire motivator in life is status, your life is a sham. Yeah. And it's obvious to most people. Most people that are kind of sure in themselves. That's why I never really bought into hanging around law kids and they'd always just be like, oh yeah, I, I, my next door neighbor's Malcolm Turnbull. And just, just trying to bring this stuff up to you to try and say constantly to you, I'm an impressive person. It actually makes you shirk away from that person. If they're just constantly, I, I really understand this in like a pickup text when they're always talking about this with women that, you know, if you're flashing your Rolex off to women or you're just getting out of your car, the only type of women that are going to be attracted to that are extremely vacuous, stupid women. You don't want to be dating these women anyway. Like, any, any woman of substance is going to think you're a creep. And, and that is the feeling that I got hanging out with these law students. They were creepy. Hmm. And it's because their motivations in life were wrong. They wanted power for the sake of having power. And really, when you want power for the sake of having power, it's emblematic. It's just a figurehead position. You're not wielding it for anything. And I don't think that's unique. I haven't had that experience with law students, but I don't think that's a unique phenomenon to law. I think in 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 the music industry, in comedy, there are so many sycophantic people that you just know they're constantly talking about, I met this person, I know this person, yeah. I, I did a yeah. video with this person. Yeah. It's not unique to law that there are very status-driven people in life and in every industry. Any industry where the, the, the top of that industry earn either huge amounts of money or have massive amounts of fame, there will be a lot of people in it just for the sake of power and fame and status. So that, that's law, that's comedy, that's acting, any sort of artistic pursuit. Mm. Politics, you can't deny there would be a lot of people in politics just for, for the power. status. Oh yeah, oh, yeah power. Actually, I think power instead of status. That would probably be the main reason yeah. most people get into politics. Someone told me, someone who was working as a junior staffer for one of the state Labour MPs, he, said, he had a good He was like, politics is for uh, people who want to be rock stars without any artistic talent. That's, look, <laughs> that's true. They want to live that life. They want to do all the cocaine. <laughs> I think so as well. But honestly, I think that, Go you know. brothels. The, the, the top politicians are the ones that have an artistic flair. Oh, yeah. You need to have that. You need to be sort of an artist. To be a politician, you have to have a lot of feathers in your cap. You need to be a comedian. You need to be a, a lawyer. You need to be an excellent orator. You need to be an artist. Yeah. You need to have an extremely right. disciplined mind to be at the top of your game. But I think that's the same with everything. I think it's the same thing when it comes to comedy. If you're a good comedian, you are not just a comedian. You're also a philosopher. Yep. You're also a lawyer. Yep. I think there's a lot of prosecuting your argument involved oh, yeah. in it. You're convincing a jury. You're convincing a jury. And you're trying to make them laugh. Yeah. A lot of lawyer, a lot of people who do law degrees get into comedy. Yeah. And I think that the reason that they're so successful, the one thing that I will say, I've always gone on tirades about how bad law is. The one thing that I will say that is good about it, I think that it regiments your mind to look at the world in terms of what are the rules? So when you get into stand-up comedy, I think yeah, the reason okay. why that they start going up a lot for hire is because they go like, what are the rules in this industry? Yeah, okay. That's how they look at it. And then they follow those rules and then they get 
to become Charlie Pickering on the weekly, basically. That's how it works. Okay. All right. Well, that was a very thorough and interesting examination of power. I think to conclude, we... Well, I think we both do agree that... What did we say? Absolute power is not absolutely corrupting, but power always is corrupting dependent upon the individual and whether or not they have their moral priorities in check. Mm. It's, a, it's a matter of degree. Yeah. And does the degree outweigh the negatives? Yes, that, that's another element too. Yeah. All right, well, thank you for that. Yeah, cheers, as always. Very stimulating. <laughs> yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> All right, see ya. Thanks for listening. Subscribe. Cheers to you. Yep. Or by the way, I do need to mention that this will be our last podcast for 2019. So thank you, everyone, who has subscribed so far. Good on you. And we'll be back better than ever in 2020, filming them again. And we should be going weekly. I'm mm-hmm. pretty confident we will be. So thanks again. Keep spreading the word. Keep sharing them. And if you haven't already, subscribe to all the socials, uh, my channels and Jordan's channels. And thank you. Have a good, uh, have a good rest of your year. Cheers, gang.